0: Hello and welcome to ESPN's The Far Post podcast. We're very excited today. We've got a a special guest, a special episode to help us talk about a report that was recently released. So we absolutely cannot wait to crack into that chat. But before we begin, we want to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands we're recording on today, the Wurundjeri and Gadigal people, and pay our respects to their elders past and present. So... Joining me, Marissa Lordanek, today is Angela Christian-Wilkes, Sam Lewis, Anna Harrington, and former New Zealand football fern and current Director of Global Policy and Strategic Relations Women's Football at FIFPRO, Sarah Gregorius. So Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're, We're stoked to chat to you, but you're live from your car, which is high production. We love to see it. We're so glad that you've made the time to actually chat to us, but it's a very important thing we're talking to you about today. The Pro, the Global Players Union, has released their first annual workload report. It's a really important report. The research that's been done is set to kind of benefit the women's game, assuming the things that we have learned from this report are actually put into place. So, Sarah, can you kind of give us an idea of what the annual workload report actually is and what the impetus was behind making this report?
1: Well, I think hopefully it's it's reasonably self-explanatory in the, in the title. What we've done is we've analysed the sort of workload of top women's football players over the last three years to get a full understanding of just how much they're playing, what kind of competitions they're playing, a number of matches, number of minutes. We also consider some other indicators like travel load and, and distance covered as well in there. And the reason why it's so important is if we want to make sort of evidence-based decisions in the women's game, then we actually have to have evidence from the women's game. And that was really the impetus behind it to make sure that we are equipping ourselves with as much information as possible so we can analyze and make the best decisions for the game moving forward.
2: So Sarah, what are some of the main, I suppose, takeaways that FIFA Pro has found through this data? In the sort of the summary sheet, there are lots of key terms such as underloading, overloading, calendars. Can you sort of um, simplify or draw out the the key themes that you found? Sure thing.
1: I And apologies, we, we do love uh, key terms and terminology uh, in our little sector, but I think it's just about looking at what's the total volume of matches that a typical international and professional club footballer plays. And then we sort of categorize it into different terms, such as overload and underload. Underload is basically, are they not playing enough? And overload is they're playing too much? But I think the layer underneath that, uh, which is a key finding from the report, is when are they playing? Because underload can be obviously playing back to back matches over a period of time. But if you compare that with the total volume of matches, you maybe see that it's not necessarily too many games, but it maybe is just too many games in a certain time period. So then one of the key findings is, is therefore, okay, we have a scheduling issue actually in women's football. So I think those are, are really the key takeaways. But yeah, apologies to everyone that, that does truck their way through the report. We we do love terminologies and acronyms and things like that. But basically it's like how often a player is playing, is the schedule assisting them in, in the way that to make sure that they get a good volume of matches, but a good volume of rest in between as well. So that rhythm to the schedule is really important. And our findings show that maybe there's a bit of work to do in that area.
3: Genuinely curious, Sarah, like, as a former pro yourself, do you when you looked at the findings of this report, how much did you feel like it reflected maybe your past experiences? Because I know here in Australia, for example, previously, now the A-League women, the W-League, previously you'd have players play a very short season once a week. And then if they get called up, it would be bang, 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 bang matches. And I can imagine that would have contributed to injuries. But did you, did you feel like, I imagine for New Zealand, for a lot of players, it would be a similar sort of experience. Did you feel like it reflected maybe what you or your, your former teammates who are maybe still pros are, are experiencing could, could you see it actually translating like in real time I guess? At a very personal
1: level it was quite validating I think because it spoke a lot to what I maybe had experienced and knew intuitively also in the conversations that I've had in my current role with players who are still professional and international footballers so in that sense and I think that's actually what why it's really important to do this type of research because a lot of the time we seem to know these things instinctively or intuitively, but actually seeing it reflected in the data is really important because it gives you a much stronger platform to have the conversations with the decision makers in particular. So yeah, certainly it reflected a lot of my own experience. A lot of when I was playing and, and particularly juggling sort of club and international football, you did feel as if you were certainly slammed in some parts of the year and then sort of twiddling your thumbs thinking like right well how do I sort of keep myself ticking over because I'm not experiencing the same amount of competitive matches that I have at other points in the year so certainly for me it was it was good and you know I do sort of bang on about these things around the office as well now I can just slam a 50-page report in front of everyone and and just say there you go have at it I told you.
4: Speaking of putting the report down in front of people um, obviously it be important to get this in front of as many people as possible but in your eyes who do you hope will get this report and read it um, and get the most out of it there's obviously so many different layers and roles in football that could definitely benefit from the findings but I guess who do you see having the most I guess power to take these findings and do something about it
1: one observation I will make is the international football stakeholder environment is pretty complex. I actually think it's less complex on the women's side, though. There is a smaller pool of competition organizers. There's a smaller pool of influential international stakeholders. So for me, there there are obviously some key ones that we need to sort of sit down and start the, the process of going through the findings and applying them to uh, the future of the game. And, and FIFA is an obvious one. Uh, They're doing a lot of work, particularly at the moment. I mean, you guys are are well into this, but the whole future of football conversations around biennial World Cups and,
2: you know, the ongoing
1: discussions around what role can a club World Cup play? Like, what is the future of the the Olympics in senior women's football? So basically, those types of influential competition organisers are the ones that we need to be speaking with. And then obviously, we talk about international football, but we also talk about domestic club football and again, in women 's football you 're talking about far fewer professional leagues than you are on the men's side so we we look at the what we believe are like some five professional leagues that are primary examples of of workload being the diamondvensk and the n w s l the f a w s l the Spanish league. Uh, and the French League so it's like okay well there's five competition organizers there as well that we maybe need to have a discussion with or equip certainly our domestic unions to have that discussion with the local competition organizer as well so it actually isn't as complex of an environment as maybe you might see in men's football Uh, but that certainly also means that I am so I'm definitely optimistic that we can get the right people around the table to have that discussion and maybe have a level of collaboration that isn't necessarily possible at this point in time on the men's side.
2: Biennial World Cups are obviously a huge talking point in international football at the moment. And as two nations who are personally quite invested in this topic over the next 18 months, uh, it's a really interesting one. And from a, a women's football perspective, I feel like the concept of Biennial World Cups hasn't really been addressed properly because a lot of women footballers earn a lot of their income through international football and through participating in World Cups. And we've seen the importance of Women's World Cups in terms of exposure and investment and sponsorships so how I guess what position does Pro have when it comes to the biennial world cup discussion from a women's point of view
1: oh juicy question I think first of all and one thing that's really a really important finding in the report is when you look at workload and number of competitive matches that, that a typical player is experiencing you can see how many of them come from international football and national team football so that's really important. And again, that's something that I've said quite often As that, look, national team football plays a different role in the women's uh, industry. So you need to acknowledge that. And now we also have the data to follow that up and some quite extraordinary numbers, particularly for players in the CONCACAF region in that regard. And then the other layer, and uh, bearing in mind that I'm here representing uh, basically a, a trade union is a lot of employment stability has come from national team football as well. And that's really critical to understand too. It's not just the amount of games that you're playing. It's it's the role that national team football has played in kind of piecing together an overall remunerational or, or payment structure that actually allows players to be professional. So that's really important. And I think that's why the, the discussion on a biennial world cup on, on the women's side of things is actually a lot more interesting, but again, it's difficult for FIFA Pro to really take a position either side because the way that FIFA has structured the proposals is they contain a whole lot more than just a biennial world cup. Whereas on the men's side, it's quite a binary conversation, right? Do we have it or do we not have it? Whereas on the women's side, it's it's a whole package of proposals and the biennial world cup is just one part of that. But I think it is really important to acknowledge, like you say, the role that it plays for players In terms of national team football and its importance and it is a huge catalyst for all of these other areas of development in women's football but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the answer so i think we do need to go through a process of exploring some other options and other roles that fifa can play in accelerating the professionalization of the game one part of that is obviously you know when you talk about redistribution of wealth BFA don't do that particularly well when you look at the disparity in prize money, for example. And then the layer underneath that will actually, who benefits from that prize money? Is it assisting the players in terms of their development or is it going straight to federations? So it really is quite a layered conversation. And I know that, again, like I mentioned earlier, for everyone like, doing this podcast, you are well into these types of nuances too. But it, it's encouraging that kind of like really specific dialogue before we say, bioneer world cup yes or no it's like well it is also still a very elite tournament so it doesn't necessarily address the problem of not enough national teams playing football or employing their players because yeah it's elite i mean it's going to 32 teams but fifa have 211 member associations so if the point is to stimulate global growth and development of the game does a very very high-end tournament actually achieve that even though, sure, it it spurs on sponsorship and visibility, you know, for that very top end of the pyramid. But I think there are definitely some other options out there that need to be explored fully in detail before we can make a decision either way.
4: You mentioned the five leagues that this um, sample draws on for the the report. Um, But as you mentioned there, there's a whole host of different, I guess, national teams and a lot of players that this report might not necessarily cover we've got some really interesting data in there on like really big names like Magdalena Eriksson, Sam Kerr I'm just interested in sort of obviously this is the first rendition are there any plans to sort of look at what player workload might look for different kinds of players potentially those who are playing for nations who might not make every world cup or those who are playing in semi-professional leagues
1: I have huge plans in that regard, I think not just to explore the experiences of different national team players, but in women's football, women's football is generally only moving in one direction, right? And that's in in growth. It's a positive trajectory in that regard. So you have a lot of emerging leagues too, like the A-League women in Australia is an example. You have the Liga MX Femenil in Mexico is another brilliant example even the expansion that's going on in the NWSL, like how do we make sure that we get more players that are representative of all of the different new franchises coming in over there? The Wii League in Japan is another example. I mean, I'd love to do a little bit more insight into some of the other Nordic leagues that play over a European summer. So yeah, I mean, for me at a very, very personal level, I know it's sort of a business decision as well, but there's so many other things that we need to look at, particularly if we want to sort of, proactively prepare ourselves for future emergence uh, of other professional leagues around the world, notwithstanding the ones I've mentioned, but you know, there's, there's only going to be a lot of growth in that regard. I think the other side of things that the report touches on is the role or lack thereof of international club competitions, but a lot of confederations have started to commit to putting in uh, a champions league in the AFC, for example, and in CAF as well. So again, how do we make sure that we have a monitoring platform that, is prepared and ready to bring in more players who are going to be playing in those competitions as well. So, yeah, I mean, that was the long answer. The short answer is yes, I'd love to do more and, and hopefully we can keep building on it in the coming years.
3: Yeah. So I'm just interested. I found the something I've always found interesting. The part about the fragmented qualifying pathways, like if you play in Oceania, you play sort of one competition and then you've qualified for everything. Whereas if you play in Europe, how good, but also not good because not competitive games. But if you're in Europe, you're smashing through loads of qualifiers and then you have the Olympics here and then you have – is is there an optimum level, I guess, is what, what I'm curious about, like in terms of – we see with the men's, obviously, the, the qualifying process is so long and it goes through a long period. And I think the European women's section kind of is reflective more of the men's, whereas – You know, for us, we've got the Matildas in the Asian Cup at the moment, which if we weren't hosts would double as our qualifiers. I've just mentioned New Zealand have the Olympics and World Cup, I think, double up in the one qualifying. Is is there an optimum level? Because obviously there's players getting absolutely smashed at one end in terms of the European side with lots and lots of games. And then you've got maybe New Zealand or other countries, maybe closer to home for us who are just not getting the competitive games and have to, as it says in the report, fill a lot of that bulk in terms of, friendlies that aren't necessarily going to be at that same intensity is do you think is there an optimum I guess balance there I think there's there's two ways to look at it and
1: if you look at it at an individual level for a player what we have not got at the moment is an optimum number of matches that a player needs to play in a calendar year for example one thing I will say which is a very interesting finding from the report is the player that we had in the in the sample that played the most, or I think she was either the played the most or second most minutes and matches in the entire sample is Alexia Patelis. So her workload seems to be working out alright for her because she's absolutely smashing it at the minutes. But we don't actually have an optimum number, but that was an interesting finding. I think when it comes to international qualifying pathways, I if I look at what motivates member associations or incentivizes them to participate in international women's football, it is those competitions, right? So when you have, like, I use OFC as an example. They played the, the OFC Nations Cup in 2018. New Zealand won, We so we won the Continental Championship. We qualified for the Olympics and we qualified for the World Cup. One tournament for three weeks every four years. And, and the other member associations go dormant. They don't have an, another opportunity to play In that type of tournament environment, they certainly don't have the capacity to organize friendly. So when you have this double up, so that's three, three competitive opportunities put into one. But imagine if the region had all of those as standalone opportunities. The flip side of that, though, is you have the situation now in UEFA, right, where they have the euros has a standalone qualification process and the world cup has a standalone qualification process so they don't have space in the calendar to have a standalone olympic qualification process which is understandable and i do think like for the very first time they adopted the same world cup qualification model as the men's which is also something that i think they get a bit of a hard time about but because people are like, why don't you do the same? And then they do do the same. And it turns out that that's maybe actually not fit for purpose, right? But this is the first time that they've gone through that and experienced it. So we are still learning as we go through, right, about what the best models of qualification are. And I think it's important to, to go through that process, particularly for the competition organizers, and then to reflect. But this is what I mean about the, the complexity of the FIFA p- proposals for women's football Uh because they, they do explore new qualification pathways. I think the danger, and that's why to uh, the question earlier on, like whether a biennial World Cup works or not, because you have sometimes quite protracted qualifying processes, all nations would be doing is qualifying. There would be no more friendlies. They would just qualify and qualify and qualify, whether it's for a continental championship or a World Cup. They would never get off that train. And so how do you actually then develop national teams and players individually within that if every game is a dual-day game? So again, I know I talk a lot and these answers are very lengthy and wordy, but it is complex and you need to look at the whole environment around it before you can make a decision. But I think my instinctive response is, can we at least separate World Cup qualifying from the continental championships? Because then at least the member associations in that country have two, two competitions to incentivize international activity around, and that's only going to benefit the players because they'll get two bite one bite at two cherries if you know it. No, that doesn't make sense, but they'll get more opportunities. I haven't thought of a good metaphor for that just yet. <laughs>
2: And another, we sort of touched on it here and there, but another huge consideration when talking about international calendars and pathways and qualification is the club football landscape and the... Uh, sort of the the growing role that it's playing for a lot of these players and couldn't help but notice that the players that are sort of selected um, as case studies in the report are those who are now playing in effectively fully professional club competitions. They're playing multiple club competitions as well, not just the league, but cups and champions leagues. But that seems to be sort of separating them from the rest of the pack there are only a couple as you mentioned there's only a handful of elite leagues that you've chosen to study here whereas there are vastly more who are semi-professional or still developing do you worry that on the club side of things it's starting to drive more of a wedge between these sort of the the elite group of players who are in studies like this and the players who actually need those opportunities to grow
1: yeah absolutely I I, the very quick answer to that is access to data so it's very very difficult to get access to data on amateur and semi-professional leagues particularly data with integrity that you can rely on and that is consistent year on year and like as simple as like proper registration of players, right? And that just obviously occurs at a certain level more often than not. But but I agree, I think there there are limitations to this report and limitations to the data in that regard. And we, we do need to figure out a way to also build evidence-based research and analysis to cater to those, those other players who are having a different type of experience. Uh, on the sort of the driving a wedge side of things, I, It's it's interesting. I have this conversation a lot at very different levels. One part of it is, you know, we get this separation now sometimes in club football where you mentioned Magdalena Eriksson and Sam Kerr before where a Chelsea comes in and they are just able to put so much more into the game and, and accelerate that professionalism a lot faster than maybe some of the traditional standalone women's football clubs, right? My attitude, again, as a trade union representative is, where can players find the best professional experience and environment for them? If other clubs and if other leagues cannot catch up, but we do get this very good stable employment environment where players can expect minimum standards when it comes to their health, safety, and well-being, and the training and match environments, and in the facilities, I'm actually okay with that. And I almost would let the market dictate itself in that regard because players want to be they deserve it and they want to be treated right and so we also have to make sure that we're putting out a message to say like look professional standards and professional football is where it's at that is the only way that the industry is going to further develop and even looking at within some of the leagues like the Spanish League and the League in England even within the 12 or 16 teams that play in that league the standards are still fragmented right and so it is about obviously trying to cater and get an understanding of everyone but you know we, we are a, a union that represents professional workers or workers at the very least so we do have to concentrate on that and there's still a lot of work to do in those environments but again I think like there needs to be a way of building an evidence-based approach to capture more players to get that understanding because there's still a lot of work to be done there's still and they need people to fight on their behalf as well so it's it's really complex it's difficult I think this is for Pro the first time
2: and I think we're really
1: the first stakeholder to do this where we've really stepped into this space and being like no look we want the we want the data we want the data with integrity and we want to present information on on professional players but I think once you dip your toe in hey it feels a little bit like all right well what's next how do we make sure that we're, we're catering to everyone and making sure that players feel like there is there is reporting out there that's representative of their experiences as fragmented as it is at the moment
4: I guess one of my um questions about the report and I suppose you've sort of answered it as well will it are you hoping it can work as a sort of accountability tool as well so if there are gaps in the data you can point to them maybe further down the track and be like, well, we just don't know, but we would like to know. Because I, I, I suppose as well how much um, uh, capacity does FIFPRO have to drive more data being collected, um, especially, I guess, when you're looking at um, maybe, like you said, leagues and administrations that might not have as much resources or just like aren't doing the work there. I hope that question makes sense.
1: I think so. Let's it would maybe judge whether it makes sense based on if my answer makes sense. I think even like when we sort of first sat down and and started the work with KPMG on building the player workload monitoring tool, which measures men's and women's football, is both. It's like well, this is and it seems really great, and it seems like really I- ideal and idealistic in what it can present and deliver. But even as you go through that process, you already start to see the gaps. Workload is one thing. The correlation, the the natural sort of relationship or correlation to it is its contribution to injury. But the, the monitoring tool can't capture injury because that requires another layer of almost like going into a player's sort of private medical data in a way. Like, okay, when you had this 57 days of periodic congestion of 10 matches in a row, did you pick up a hamstring injury but you can't capture that through this like sort of global monitoring tool but that is the obvious correlation because making the link between back-to-back matches and injuries you know what I mean like it seems kind of obvious but there is a limitation on what we can capture in the data that doesn't actually give us that so you kind of already see, see as you go through the process the gaps and that's notwithstanding my earlier answer and the fact that The 10,000 players that we represent in women's football can't all be in the tool, right? But that would be ideal where you can just take every national team and every like semi-pro or professional player and, and put them in there and make these amazing like correlations between workload and injury and fatigue and travel and conditions. But it doesn't do that. But it doesn't take away from how useful the data that we do already have is because no one else is doing it, right? But yeah, certainly I think we have this sort of internal reflection at Pro a lot is like, okay, at what point do we need to really revolution, revolutionize the data, the data capture process or innovate the tool in a way to, to do even more? But you sort of also have to take a deep breath and be like, okay, actually this report, and we need to give it time to be digested by everyone for the findings to land and things like that before we think about how we, we rip it up and do something brand spanking, shiny new the next time.
3: So I'm curious in what the impact of COVID has been on all of this, because obviously you had initially a lot of um, leagues suspended, no international travel, and then it seems like for some, like Sam Kerr is probably a good example, or a Magda Erickson, it's almost at this point back to relative business as usual in terms of flying around a lot for club football, a lot of commitments, flying about a lot for international football, doing tournaments. But I imagine, well, not I imagine oh, there'd be others that, international football sort of come to a total halt or they're not able to travel or there's been more disruption. Like, I mean, what, what is it that I guess you guys have noticed in terms of compiling these because obviously there'd be players with long layoffs and I know you can't monitor injuries, but that would come into it. There's been leagues that have been cut short or been moved around or players that have had to change things completely. I mean, how much, how, I guess also just how much of a complicating factors have been trying to do this report while there's been this other element that's changed so much, if that makes sense. Like, it's. It feels like for some players, COVID has sort of halted things briefly and then it's almost business as usual, but others clearly would have had their club and international talent sort of decimated. And I guess how do we push through this and find, it's not going to be equilibrium, but find a, a good point? Yeah,
1: COVID um, really screwed us over in the data, if I'm being honest, because we wanted to do three years from 2018 to 2021 and then 2020. The data is, I wouldn't even say that it's necessarily skewed, but you can't talk about it without mentioning the impact of COVID. I think what was really interesting, and again, the the data in the report just showed this, it really shone a light on why a professional designation for a league is so important, because a lot of the leagues couldn't restart because they weren't professional and the mandates were coming down from the government, right? We had that, I mean, the Dutch league isn't covered in the report, but that was a situation in the Netherlands. The men's Eredivisie could start again because it has a, de- a designation as professional, but the women's league couldn't restart under all of these conditions and was like left in the same category as like public and community sport because it hadn't been given that designation. I think Spain was the same. The only one where it, there was sort of no delineation between how the men's league and the women's league were affected was Germany because they sort of stepped in and and treated them at the leagues exactly the same even though technically the league in Germany is not professional so it started to shine a light on actually some of the barriers or the ways in which lack of professionalization can create barriers in a time of like pandemic or crisis so that was really interesting but you also don't want to put I know that sort of schedules are starting to build back up again and we're seeing, um, you know, sort of football push through, no matter what the sort of local public uh, health situation is, but you have to, you have to just be so careful in the application of the protocols. I mean, we've already seen that in in the Asian women's cup in India with the Indian women's national team in particular, and the devastating uh, situation that the players there have found themselves in and not being able to complete the tournament and possibly qualify for a world cup. So I think COVID's just added a bit of a spotlight on some existing barriers that now manifest themselves in a difficult way. It's just made travel, like it's just put another layer of complexity on that travel. Uh, Obviously a major one, particularly for players uh, who are flying sort of Northern to Southern hemisphere is the approach in Australia, right? In terms of having to quarantine and things like that, when you are, going from that environment to the UK what does it mean for you when you return from international football are you having to go into a quarantine environment are you putting your club at risk like there are so many different elements to it now I think we're, we're sort of only really scratching the surface I feel like in five or ten years we'll look back on this period when it's hopefully over and be like oh yeah this is this is actually how it manifested itself But I think we're still in the process of understanding that.
2: Speaking of COVID and I guess the Asian cup is another good sort of entry point into this. It it really points to how necessary it is for clubs and national teams to collaborate and to communicate when it comes to player loading. And I'm not sure how much attention you paid to Tony Gustafson's press conferences, but he's talked a lot over the past week about player loading and player management and having players come in from club duty at different times from a FIFA pro perspective. What would you say is, I guess, the average amount of collaboration between major clubs and national teams? Is it quite open and honest and collaborative or are there sort of um, blockages and um, other issues that are being dealt with beneath the surface that fans and media are maybe not aware of?
1: An observation that I've made is sometimes it's a bit personality driven, right? It actually depends on the people rather than the structures and there being like a hard and fast rule or a certain standard that you, you know, clubs and national team coaches in particular have to adhere to. So I think it really just depends. I think now, who, who was I speaking to the other day? I think it was, it was, it was someone who had been involved with the Netherlands national team. And actually now that they have a coach who has come from a club environment, that sort of changed things again as well, because obviously there is that, under, that understanding of being on both sides with Mark Parsons. So I think in the end, at some point you're just going to have to arrive at the fact that it just benefits. like players are too important to club and country for there not to be collaboration and for there not to be structures and systems in place that can help manage it. What I've observed is just, I mean, depending on who you talk to on whatever day of the week, it is just really different on what everyone um, does and how they speak to each other and and the level of communication. I think actually in some respects, so it's a bit of a, a data issue as well, because there isn't like a player's ability to actually take their data from one environment to the next is actually not as fluid as it could be. So I think there also needs to be a better system in place where maybe at the player's discretion they can share their personal data back and forth and but it's within their control so the data is not being sent from club to national team coach without them actually saying look here it is and here it is in a system that I've opted into and that I'm willing to share data both ways because I think depending on the coaches at either end like some want to know about form or performance right others actually want to know about how many minutes are in the legs of these players or how many well not minutes so much but how many kilometers and that requires information not just about the matches but also about the training environments too so I actually think to make it even more complex we're actually kind of missing a data system that allows that transfer to happen easily and for people to to be able to access the knowledge that they need so it's not a case of a club coach we about us. Oh, so, what did you do for it that couple of weeks uh, with your national team? Did you train that much? Did you play like with the games? Were you heavy? What was your sort of perceived rate of exertion and that kind of thing? I think actually some of this could be solved with a better data collection and management system as well.
0: I wanted to bring it back to the report and Australian football because obviously we are an Australian women's football podcast. So the concept of underloading in this report was one that was very fascinating. And the way that you described how some of these answers were very validating because they kind of reflected your lived experience, the concept of underloading and the A-League women's competition being the competition with the biggest off-seasons and the biggest delay between seasons was very validating in the sense that we all knew that was going on, but it was nice to have the numbers to back that up. So from a very Australian Australian um, A-League women's perspective, just how bad is underloading for these players and for their aspirations and for how they kind of go about their their careers and how the, the flick between maybe a competition like the A-League women's and then heading into a national team environment with the Matildas where you're going from not a lot of games to all of a sudden tournament football, just how bad is this for these players?
1: I think there's a couple of different ways to look at it. I think from a physiological loading point of view, it's it's pretty tough, right? Because that there isn't, and again, certainly based on my experiences and the conversations that I have with a lot of players, what you do in a training environment cannot replicate a match. It can get close, but it's just not the same in terms of intensity and the way that it can affect your body physiologically. So that's one thing. So if you're not conditioned to play high-intensity matches, And then you have to play high-intensity matches in a very short period of time. Yeah, that's pretty tough. That's tough to manage from a form point of view and from a physical point of view. The other side of it is with these shorts, one thing that is very evident in women's football is short-term contracts across the board, whether it's professional or short-term contracts. If you have a short-term contract where you're going season to season, right, and the season itself is short, every game from like a employment point of view is like a cup final, right? You're playing for your next contract. And that's really tough if you only have 12 games to do that. Right. And so you have that, that sort of scenario in the A-League women, another league where I see that, and I think this is down to scheduling is the NWSL. So the NWSL, they play their season and it runs for the sort of Northern hemisphere summer uh, they don't have many teams, so they have 10 teams at the minute. Uh, they have the Challenge Cup, but they, you know, that, again, has been something that's, that's new that's come in because of COVID. But they, they also don't break for international windows and international competitions the same way some other leagues do. So if you're a player in that league and you're on a short-term contract and you only have maybe 22 matches a season or, or whatever it may be, and you're not there for a third of them because you might be away with your national team, that's not a lot of opportunity to fight for your next contract and so I think it puts all sorts of different layers of pressure on players and actually it could lead to negative behavior right at an individual level because if you're playing in the A-League women and you've got six matches left and you're trying to fight for a contract for next season and you start to feel a bit of a niggle in your hamstring for example the chances of you reporting that and having to sit out a couple of those games maybe you take the risk to play through that and so I think all of those indicators can sometimes lead to obviously a lot of pressure and maybe some negative behaviors as well. So it is an issue. And I mean, I know now that we've had um, the A League Women's Phoenix team come in and, and create another team, which create maybe creates another game and that kind of thing. And. And I think if you look around the world at at the different leagues, even at the top sort of professional end, that they just don't have many teams, which means you don't have as many domestic club matches to play and compete in, which leads to maybe like players also. The other side of it is if you're not able to test yourself and regularly compete, what is that doing for your individual development of your talent and your, your ability to reach that potential and then exploit it and make a career out of it? So there are just so many different things and so many different ways in which underload can manifest itself negatively for players at an individual level. And then like I mean for the industry. If there aren't enough competitions or competitive opportunities, how is the industry meant to meet meant to meet its potential as well? And so I think there's there's so many different things. And that's why we just really wanted to put forward the first of all put forward the concept of underload and talk about like I'm getting the opportunity here to do so. Talk about like how that is maybe n- contributing to us not all meeting our potential in that regard.
3: I guess just to follow briefly on from that, Sarah, how do you juggle that with, say, you've got leagues or football governing bodies that go, oh, but we can't afford to, let's say, in the A-League Women's Novice one, expand to home and away straight away. We can't afford to do this straight away. We can't can't justify it financially or we don't want it to clash with this or that or, you know, there's all sorts of, I guess, various excuses and reasons why they say not to do it. But, I mean, (laughs) how in terms of the actual value it seems like we're missing out on a whole lot more both in terms of potential and in terms of literal the toll on players the underload for players that the actual cost maybe the unseen cost versus the potential financial cost it doesn't seem to add up is that is that fair yeah
1: and it's tough because obviously I don't have a lot of money in my bank account to like kind of bankroll this kind of stuff because yeah it's like it's that constant thing of like yeah but the return on investment the potential ROI is huge but it doesn't seem to be motivating enough for people to step in and take that risk And I think it's like you don't know what you don't know so you can assume that it's going to run at a loss but you actually don't know that and a lot of the a lot of the organizations that have stepped in and have taken that sort of quote-unquote risk have seen a lot more benefits and they have seen negatives right so but again I also wonder if it's because there is such a saturation on the men's side and so many so much lack of opportunity for innovation that that mentality comes into the women's game and it makes people be so much more conservative when actually you need to take a startup approach rather than like a a sort of industry saturation approach. So I think sometimes we inherit that type of behavior too, but again it's it's said so many times I mean and so many different organizations like Deloitte they've put out these reports on the fact that you want to be in a a boom industry women's sport is where it's at and what's the biggest sport within that it's women's football but I don't know and I think partly there's this like feeling sometimes of nostalgia like everyone sort of loves this feeling that we get in women's football and they want to hold on to it and they want to keep the traditions and keep the same teams and well I don't want to go in and infect and affect like you know what's happening really at that other layer at grassroots or domestic club level I don't want to you know and it's like well okay but what are we missing out on and like at some point I also think someone will step in and just be like, no, I'm doing it. And they're going to be the ones that are probably laughing all the way to the bank. And then everyone else will be coming in over the top and with all of the different competing interests and be like, yeah, I want a piece of that and trying to, to carve up the pie. So I'm always a bit like, right, how can we just, the ones that are in the sport at the moment, how can we get together and put some things preemptively in place that'll just make everything more sustainable. And we don't want, the type of progression that gets out of control either we want to have inbuilt player welfare structures for example inbuilt employment stability structures for example but yeah I don't know I don't know why it's still such a niggly one on like trying to still trying to convince people that it's worth that type of investment because it, it really all evidence just shows it's only going in one direction and if you if you get in it'll pay off down the line
0: I think that fits quite nicely into a question I had, that concept of kind of looking at the men's game and then looking at the women's game and assessing them or the ways that we assess them. So often we know that men's narratives are kind of then applied to the women's game without actually testing them to see if they're actually fit for use. So it feels like an an obvious question to ask, and it's kind of been the undertone of this entire chat, but just how important is gender-specific data when it comes to how we make decisions, how we view the women's game, how we make things grow? Just how important is it to kind of really zero in and focus on what's actually happening in the women's game and how we can make the women's game better? It's a big sigh because it's so important. It, It just cannot be
1: underestimated you know I had to have a conversation recently where I sort of had to stop I was in a uh, Kevin conversation or something and I sort of had to stop and be like listen can you stop thinking about women as small men you know so that that applies to just so many different things whether you're looking at sports science whether you're looking at like medical health and safety standards whether you're looking at workload like of course it, it seems so intuitive but of course it has to be gender specific and I think you know, talking about the inheritance of inheriting some of the mindset from men's football into women's football sometimes I have to like sort of calm myself down and maybe look at kind of the reasons why that happens and why it happens so often. I think sometimes it's forgotten that we have one governance structure for two industries you have a men's football industry and a women's football industry, but you have one governance structure. So you don't have a gender specific governance structure either. And one of those industries for so long has been so dominant and it's actually tried to suppress the other industry, but you haven't addressed the governance of both of them. So, of course, like that, we're still dealing with that in a lot of different ways. And that's why getting gender specific data and evidence and research is so important because that's the only way we're going to start to unpack all of that kind of thing and actually bring more realization to the fact that it is two different industries and it's also maybe easy for me to say that because i'm also like well, we've got two different sets of workers we have men's football workers and women's football workers and so maybe as a union it's more instinctive for us to understand that because we we're just looking at two different like industries with two distinct sets of workers but I think that governance structure that sits above all of that, I don't think they've really come to terms with the fact that they are governing two very distinct industries with two very distinct, two very distinct playing communities. So I think that's part of the problem as well. And So we just have to keep showing why you need specific expertise and understanding because actually the data is different. The experience is so different. Uh, so we just have to keep pushing that, even though I think probably for for you all and for me as well, it, it seems so intuitive. But trust me, it's not that intuitive for some of the others.
4: I have a nuffy question, if that's okay. That's not to do with the report. I'm just interested um, as a Wellington native, how how have your thoughts and feelings been with the introduction of the Knicks into the dub this year? And I, I, it sounds like you've got a very busy schedule, um, so we won't be doing a pop quiz on the different players or anything like that, but just interested on how, how you've been feeling about that.
1: Yeah. I love it. I mean, it still sort of blows my mind that there is a professional opportunity in Wellington where I grew up and ran around as a kid in the different fields and turfs. And so that still sort of blows my mind. And it gives me, yeah a huge smile that we've kind of achieved that and that's possible for other like kids now growing up and running around on the same fields that I did it's extraordinary I understand it's come in unbelievably challenging circumstances as well but now you can't take it back right it's there it's established we needed to get the first step on that journey taken has it been perfect no and I've when I have been able to i have watched the games and I've watched the players and I know the coaches, I know some of the people involved in that environment. It's, it's, it's desperately exciting. And I think, yeah, as, as a kid, if I had grown up knowing that, I mean, how inspiring, how incredible uh, that it's so within that grasp. And I hope eventually they get the opportunity to play in those fields or like train and be seen and be around the community in Wellington because it's a, it's really a football community and they're going to be so embraced. So it's, it's so cool. It's just such a shame that it hasn't been able to be like really, truly in Wellington yet uh, or even in New Zealand for that matter. But it's, it's, I mean, taking off all of the different hats and roles and things that I have, it's just bloody cool. It's so cool. There's professional football in Wellington. It's like I can't even believe it. It's sick.
3: We would call it a how good on our podcast. Oh, how good? Yeah, yeah. we say how good. <laughs> it's definitely a how good, and
1: you do love it to is. see it. Yeah, love to see it. How good.
0: You fit right in, honestly. You you've made yourself very very uh, easily slotted into this podcast, but. We can't thank you enough for for jumping on, for chatting to us. We've had an absolute ball. I hope you've enjoyed the opportunity to really take us through this report because I think we all agree it's an important piece of work in terms of wanting the women's game to progress, which is ultimately what we all want. So thank you so much for jumping on with us today. We, We really can't thank you enough.
1: No, and thank you as well because obviously I love talking about these types of nuances. And it's very hard to capture that even within the report itself. So thank you all for taking the time to read it and for thinking of questions that now have made my mouth go dry because I've like talked so much and that sort of thing. So it's really cool and I love doing it. And if you ever want to just have a chat about all things women's football or, or anything really, then I'm here for it because there are, there is such good expertise out there and there are people that love it and embrace it. And that's me, like I'm, I'm someone that just loves the sport and wants to see it grow. And, and my sense is that all you wouldn't be doing this podcast if you all didn't feel the same. So I think for me, thank you, because I love these types of conversations. I love reporting on women's football. I'm an absolute geek about it uh, and I want to see it grow. And yeah, I mean, thank you, thank you, thank you again. And, and hopefully the people that have listened to it haven't been like, well, what is she talking about? Because I think there's some really good stuff. And once everyone has that understanding, we'll be able to... Yeah, we'll just be able to take the, the game to where it can go.
0: No, I think you've done very well in explaining things and stuff and all of that. Also, we would love to have you back on, I reckon, in the lead-up to the World Cup. It would be
4: mm.
0: very, very good to, to have a Kiwi on to balance out all this Australian... <laughs> <laughs> very much so but um no thank you all for tuning in we hope you learned something we would recommend reading the report or at least the summaries because there is so much good information in there remember you can find us on espn.com.au and the espn app we're on spotify apple and google wherever you listen to your podcasts really leave a review subscribe if you feel like it you can chat to us at the far post pod on all social media but until next time see us